Well, good morning again. Just want to remind us, this Community Sunday, what we did was we stripped down our buffet and we have one main item because it's going to cost $6 for adults and two for children. Why did we do that? Well, because we want you to come and join us to get to know people. It's about building relationships, and we'll find out today how important relationship building really is. All right, we're going to stand as we go to the Lord in prayer today. And um, just going to believe God for uh, a great work in our soul today. You know, we, we are hearing now God is moving in North America in a very special way. Some of you are probably well aware of what's happening in Asbury, the university there. God's spirit is being poured out. And they've had a prayer meeting now that, well, a service that's gone since February the 8th nonstop. Now, probably most people can't do that. These are university students and they're young and they're vital, in, you know, energetic. So, but there's sometimes there's probably about 20 people there, but we've been kind of tracking what God's doing. And I'm excited because it reminds me when I became a believer in the 1970s, how God was pouring out a spirit across university campuses and around uh, North America, because the time that at that time, there was so much brokenness. Uh, there was a lot of problems and God intervened. How many know Jesus said, I will build my church. It's not human beings that do it, it's God that does it. God does use people, but God is the one who's orchestrating these things. So let's pray. Father, we open our heart to you today. We want to hear your voice. We know that faith comes by hearing your word. And even as we hear your word today, I pray that the gift of faith would be deposited in our hearts. We would be hearing the voice of the Father speaking into our lives as his children we want to hear you, Father. We want to hear you through your word today. We want to respond to you. We want your spirit, Father, to uh, open our spirit so that when we experience you today, it could be a life-defining, life-changing moment in our lives. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I want to read a little bit, an excerpt from Max Licato's book, he still moves the stones. And what Max does in the story is retell the healing that Jesus brought to a man who was paralyzed. He couldn't walk, so four of his friends decided to bring him to Jesus. But when they got to the house, the place was packed. And so they did something very unusual. You know, uh, actually, they started lifting the tiles off the top of the house so they could lower them down. And Jesus obviously did something exciting and it's recorded for us in the scripture. So I'm gonna pick up where Max tells the story. He says, whether he was paralyzed or became paralyzed, the end result was the same. Total dependency on others. Someone had to wash his face, bathe his body. He couldn't blow his nose or go for a walk. When he ran, it was in his dreams. And his dreams had always awakened to a body that couldn't turn over, couldn't oftentimes go back to sleep. What he needed was a new body. Any man in half his mind would say what he needs is a God in heaven to restore what tragedy had robbed. Arms that swing, hands that grip, feet that dance. So when people looked at him, they didn't see the man, they saw a body in need of a miracle. But that's not what Jesus saw. What, that's what his friends saw. So what, did they, did, what they did was what any of one of us would probably do. They would try to go for help. They had heard about Jesus. They had heard about all the miracles he was doing, how many people were being healed, so they brought him to Jesus. Uh, by the time his friends arrived at the place where Jesus was, the house was full. But they had an idea, and we know the story. They climbed to the roof. They started cutting through the roofing. It was a flat roof, a tiling started pulling it apart. It was risky. They could fall. How many know it was dangerous? The person could fall, the person they were lowering down. It was unorthodox. How many know de-roofing is antisocial behavior? <laughs> it was intrusive. Jesus was busy ministering to people, but it was their only chance to see Jesus. So they climbed to the roof. Jesus was moved by the scene of faith. So he applauded, not necessarily with his hands, but obviously with his heart. And he blessed. He was moved with compassion. That's what love does. It's moved to do something. The friends wanted Jesus to heal their friend, but Jesus would not just settle simply for a healing of the body. He wanted to heal the soul. And so he leapfrogs the physical and deals with the spiritual. 
To heal the body is temporal. It's only for a short season. To heal the soul, eternal. The request of the friends is valid, but it's timid. The expectation of the crowd are high, but not high enough. They expect Jesus to say, I heal you. Instead, he says, I forgive you. They expected him to treat the body, for that is what they, want, they wanted to see. He chose to treat not only the body, but also the spiritual, for that's what God sees. That's who Christ is. They wanted Jesus to give the man a new body so he could walk. Jesus gives grace so the man can live. It's kind of remarkable. God knows what our greater need is. Sometimes God is so touched by what he sees that he gives us what we need and not simply for that which we ask him of. It's remarkable. I mean, think about it. It's a good thing. For who would have ever thought to ask God for what he actually gives us? Which of us would have dared to say, God, would you please hang yourself on a tool of torture as a substitute for every mistake I have ever committed? Probably not, right? And then have the audacity to add, and after you forgive me, could you prepare a place in your house to live forever? And if that wasn't enough, and would you please let me, you know, live within me, protect me, guide, and bless me more than I ever could deserve? To heal the man's body took a simple command. To forgive the man's sin, well, it took Jesus' blood. It cost him his life. The first was done in the house of friends, the second on a hill with thieves. One took a word, the other took his body. One took a moment, the other took his life. So strong was Christ's love for this crew of faith that he went beyond their appeal and went straight to the cross. How many realize that the great need in every time and place has always been the same? Humanity's greatest need, your greatest need, my greatest need is to be loved unconditionally. And you know what? We need to be loved over and over again. For love acts beyond what is any it can expect. It gives what is needed and far more. Without it, all the noblest of acts have a hollowness and a shallowness about them. All the knowledge in the world cannot replace love as the deepest need in our lives. And as we evaluate the world in which we live in, we might say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we saw more supernatural things so that people would, you know, come to faith in Christ? But I recognized one thing. Even when Lazarus was raised from the dead, there were people who still did not believe and they ran away and had Jesus crucified, even though others did believe. The greatest need, I think, that our world needs to experience is that our world needs to be loved. We need to be loved. This is a kind of love that each of us needs and it only can come from the hand of God. Only he can love you and I enough. The best that each of us can give one another falls far short of what each of us needs. We come to the end of ourselves. God's love is unlimited. God's love is unconditional. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. This is where we're going to go today, 1 Corinthians 13. You know, I've been doing a series of uh, classes on Wednesday night. I've been teaching through 1 Corinthians and I got to chapter 13 and I've been stuck. I've been spending so much time in chapter 13. I have been meditating on this chapter. I can't get away from it. It's haunting my mind. You ever have those moments you just can't move on? I'm stuck. I said, okay, the church is going to hear this because I, I can't go on. This is, and I thought, you know, I'm doing a little mini-series on marriage. I thought, what better topic to be speaking of than love? It's the greatest need in all of our lives. Paul's writing to this amazingly gifted church, but they had all kinds of issues. You know, they were advocating for knowledge and eloquence. As a matter of fact, they had supernatural gifts, healings, miracles in their midst. You know, they, they advocated the idea that they could speak in tongues, beautiful language that was unfruitful to the human mind, but it was a direct language to God. Paul's going to speak about this. They were overemphasizing it. People didn't understand what was going on. Some people thought they were crazy. Still happens today, right? Well, let's pick up the story. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Uh, let me just read this little statement here, because I think we need, we need something we don't deserve, which is love. The problem is that we need it over and over again, and God never tires of us in our needs. Isn't that great? 
Sometimes we think, well, you know, God probably gets tired of me bugging him. God goes, no, I love it. Keep coming. I'd love to help you. Uh, so let's pick up the story. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, so this is the Corinthians, they were into this, but I have not love. So now he's going to talk the problem that they had. You see, what they were doing was they were busy litigating against each other. They were busy, uh, you know, taking advantage of one another, financially, sexually, in every which way. They, they were so messed up. You know, it almost looks like our world today. It's so broken. And yet, Paul is saying, you're missing the essence of what the Christian life is all about. You see, the world does not, the society does not see need miracles. I mean, yeah, they, they can use a few miracles, but that's not what our ultimate need is. The greatest need is to be shown that God really does care for humanity. That's our greatest need. That's what people need the most. As a matter of fact, Jesus said when he was about to leave, he was telling his disciples in the upper room, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. The distinguishing mark of the Christian life is love. The end result of faith in Christ should be maturing us and developing us to become more like him, which is to become loving. And we're going to see that. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. What's he saying? I'm just making a bunch of noise. It's not going to have real impact. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, or I can preach, that's another prophecy can be preaching or telling, and I can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and I have faith that can move mountains. See, Jesus talked about having faith to move a mountain. So even if I have that kind of faith, and I have not love, it doesn't matter. It's not that important. It's not that great. It's not what's going to change people. He goes, if I give all I possess to the poor, I give away everything to help other people, and I surrender my body to the flames. And In other words, I'm a martyr for what I believe in, but I have not love. I gain nothing. So what is he saying to us? Love is supreme. Love is the ultimate. Love is important that we understand this because it's zeroing in on the heart of what Christianity is all about. So the question I, I raise to myself, and I, 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 I zero in on this church in Corinth. I mean, they, they lacked nothing in ability, but they were shooting zeros in the realm of love. They just have, they weren't there. So what is motivating their, what was motivating their lives? What was compelling them to do what they were doing? Well, without the love of God as the compelling force in, the, in their lives, the church would continue to struggle and be ineffective. And the Corinthian church was struggling, and it was ineffective. But what's true for them is true for us, and it's true for all of our lives. You know, if we, if we don't have God's love flowing into us and changing us and developing us and flowing through us to other people, we're never going to impact people. We're never going to be fruitful. We're never going to mature. I think it's interesting, Jonathan uh, Smith, who is the writer of Gulliver's, Gulliver's Travels, he said something very profound. Many of you may not know this. He wrote a long time ago, but he said something very interesting. He said, often we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. You know, when I look at our culture today, and I see it even in the church, when people are angry, frustrated, irritated, upset, you know what? We're right on this. You know, it's not about being always right. It's about being loving. It's about doing the right thing. So I think we're going to look at, we're going to look at this chapter, and there's three aspects of God's love that reveals his nature. And I, I've entitled this church, uh, this church, this sermon, What It Is That We Don't Understand About Love. Because I think we have a warped understanding. Our society's totally warped it. Hollywood totally has a false understanding. A lot of people have a wrong understanding about love. We need to hear what God has to say about love. You say, why do we need to hear it? Because God himself is love. You know, the evidence of God's nature in our lives is love. So let's take a look at the first aspect. It's preeminence. Love is the most important thing. It's the very nature of God. God's love flows into our lives. Matter of fact, Paul, writing to the Galatian in the province of Galatia, he says this, the evidence of God's nature, when God is at work in your life, you'll see the fruit or the result. It's love. Look how he says it here. 
The fruit, but the fruit of the Spirit, notice the word fruit is singular, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now you'll notice there's other words here, other verbs to describe it, but I think they're all describing the nature of love. You see, the fruit of the Spirit is love, but I think, you know, joy is an expression of love. You know, we have the love of God in our hearts, it produces joy. You have the love of, heart, God, uh, love of God in your heart, it produces peace. If you have the love of God in your heart, it's gonna produce forbearance. That's, that's the ability to be able to suffer long, to have patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Does that describe you? Mm, I don't know. We're gonna pull out a report card. At the end of the service, we're gonna find out exactly how we're faring and how much of God's love is really running in our cylinders, okay? Again, and he goes, against such there is no law. Hey, listen, if you live like this, you don't have to worry about a law to govern your behavior because you're not causing anybody any grief. Love is actually concerned about other people. And that's what we need to understand. We have to create all these laws to help us relate to each other in a healthy way. If you're a full of God's love, you will be doing it. As a matter of fact, it says, whoever does not love does not know God. Wow, that's a strong statement. You know, we can say, well, yeah, I know God, but yeah, but do you love? Well, not very well. I go, well, then you don't know God very well. That's all part of developing an understanding of who God is because God is love. God is love. So you want to find out what is God like? God's love. Love is not God. God is love. It's the difference. You know, when people came to Jesus, they, they wanted to always entrap him or ask him a question. It was a teacher that came to him. And uh, he says to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Isn't that great? Jesus says, you know what the greatest commandment is? Uh, it's to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when he heard that answer, he said to Jesus, uh, of all the commandments, which is the most important, Jesus said, most important one is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Think about that for a minute. I ask myself the question, do I love God with everything within me? Do I love God with all my mind? How many people, you, you ever ask yourself, what does that really mean to love God with all your mind? You know what it means? It means that God has captured our thoughts. And you know, we get kind of, sometimes we get crazy thoughts, but you know what we have to do? The Bible says taking captive every thought and making it obedient to Christ. That's part of loving God with our minds because what we think in our minds eventually produces attitudes and then actual actions afterwards. You know, these bad actions that people are doing, it comes out of a bad attitude or a bad thought. And that thought needs to be addressed at its thought level. We can't entertain those thoughts. We have to address them at the thought level. To love God with all of your mind means you're willing to address the wrong thinking in your mind, the wrong attitude. To love God with all your strength. That means to love God with your energy, your time, your vitality, your agenda. Actually, what it means is I lay down my agenda. Jesus taught us how to pray. Your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. All of these things are teaching us that I'm, I'm serving God. I'm living for God with my entire being. You know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that my prayer when I get up in the morning? Lord, what is your will for me today? Now, I don't always know what it is. I have things I know I need to do. But how many of you have ever had those moments when what you know you needed to do got bumped? Things come crashing into your life. And what happens is we get all upset. Whoa, I don't like this. This is wrecking my plans. Yeah, but that wasn't God's plans. Maybe these other things are God's plans. See, when we're open to the will of God, we go, oh, I see we're on this agenda right now. So every person that you know, we might deem as an interruption may be a divine appointment. See, it depends how we look at it. Are we beginning to catch how we love God? The second is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commands than these. If you love God, you will love your neighbor. You know, as a matter of fact, I would argue if you don't love your neighbor, you don't love God. Because it's easy to say I love someone who I can't see and have a difficulty with people I do see. 
Actually, the measure of my love for God is determined on how I'm treating my wife, my children, my neighbors, my coworkers, my classmates, wherever I'm in. That's, that's showing how I'm relating to it. Well, these Corinthians, you know what? They were, they were caught up with wisdom, eloquence, gifts. They were critical, judgmental, immoral, and greedy. Kind of sounds like people I know. You know, lots of people like this. So this word love has to be defined because in our society, you know, we live in a sexualized society. How many say that's so true, Pastor? It's totally sexualized. So we think of love in a totally sexual manner. I'm gonna remove that thought from your mind right now because that's not God's kind of love. You see, the Bible actually redefines a Greek word. You know, the Greeks actually had more than one word for love. They had filio, which is a brotherly kind of love. That's where you get Philadelphia from. But this chapter is dealing with agape. Agape was a word, as, as Leon Morris writes, he said, the, the highest concept of love before the New Testament was that of a love for the best one knows. But the Christians actually, inspired by the Spirit of God, changed the meaning of agape. And they thought of agape love as a love that we see exhibited on the cross where Jesus gives up his life for another. It's a, it's a totally different kind of love. It's a love for the utterly unworthy, a love that proceeds from a God who is love. So in other words, this kind of love is not based on the object. See, you and I love what's beautiful. We love what's comfortable. We love what uh, makes us feel good. That's what we love. No, see, God loves the unlovable. God is love. It's not about the object. It's about who he is. He is the nature of love. And so he loves the least deserving person. He loves everyone, which is amazing to us. He loves the annoying person, the grumpy person, the impatient person, the angry person. He loves the, uh, the perpetrators of crimes. He loves everybody. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God himself is love. This agape word, it's interesting. Alan Redpat writes, uh, well, let's, I'll, let me finish Leon Morris's thought. He said, it's a love lavished on others without a thought whether they are worthy or not. It proceeds from the nature of the lover, not from any attractiveness in the beloved. Beautiful. Well, let me go move on here to Stephen uh, Redpath, or Alan Redpath. He says, agape is the word used almost exclusively in the New Testament when it uses the English translation of love. It's the word we get, our English word, Agony. Wow, it means uh, the actual absorption of every part of our being in one great passion. It's a word that speaks of complete self-denial, which is what Jesus did. And it's always used when the will is involved rather than the emotion. So, you know, a lot of people think, well, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't feel the love. Well, that's just emotion. Love, God's kind of love, is a commitment. It's an act of the will, which is why in regard to the Christian attitude towards his enemy, this is the word the Lord used, you shall love or agape or agonize over your enemies. God's calling us to, to love our enemies. Is that amazing? It's very powerful. Let's love above all. We notice that these are the things that Paul enumerates and they all have value. You know, how many know it's great to communicate the gospel, the good news about you? That's a great thing. It's wonderful to speak in tongues. Paul's not even speaking down on that as a spiritual gift. But apart from love, it's just noise. God works and uses people despite themselves. As a matter of fact, our, our ministry gifts and the results of our ministry are not necessarily God's endorsement on our life. How many times we've seen people have done great things and yet later on we find out they were a total mess. Listen to what Jesus warns in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I think we need to take this seriously. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So God is interested in us doing what he's asking us to do. It's not our agenda, it's his agenda. It says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy or preach in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles and then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. 
Wow, that's strong language. How many of that's shocking? Does that shake you up a little bit? It ought to. You say, well, then how do I know, Pastor, that, I'm, that I'm, I'm part of God's kingdom? How do I know that I know the Lord? Because I want to please him. I have a desire and a longing to do his will. I want to do what God wants me to do. It's not about my will. It's about his. It's about his agenda. God, help me to know what you want me to do. And then help me to do what you're asking me to do. I'm reading the scriptures and it tells me how to live. And I'm actually trying to follow along and do it regardless of my emotions or not. I don't feel like doing that. Well, that's not love, folks. That's just an emotion. You know, emotions come and go. I'm going to be honest with you. They come and go. You have to be committed. You know, it's interesting, and here's some examples. Alan Redpath says, Balaam uh, was a prophet, but he had no love, and thereby he betrayed his prophetic office. He said the truth about Israel four times, but then he, he, he explained to the enemies of God's people how to defeat them because he was greedy. That tells you that in the book of Jude. Caiaphas, the high priest, had discernment, for he knew that one must be slain for the nation, but he was without loving. He became a leader among those who crucified the Lord of glory. Isn't that amazing? He knew, and yet he didn't know. See, love has, has an insight that information doesn't have. Judas Iscariot, had knowledge. Can you imagine walking with Jesus for three and a half years and seeing all those miracles? He saw them, but he had no love, and he ended up betraying the Lord. Wow. So right actions, but wrong motivations don't have right values. Look at verse three. It says, if I give all I possess to the poor. So not, you, know, you, can, you have people that are great philanthropists. You, I've had people say, well, these guys do such good things. I'm saying, great. But if they don't know God, they don't have the love of God, it doesn't have real eternal value. It may have moment, momentary value. It may help some people. But, he, but for the actual person doing it, it says, I'm really not gaining anything. You might feel good for a moment. But that's it. So you say, why would somebody do these nice things like this, in verse 3, without love? Because there's other motivations. People look up to me, people, I get rewarded, I get gained, I feel self-aggrandizement. Lots of different motives why people do what they do. But let me move on to the second aspect here. And that's, a, that's love's characteristics. What, what does God's kind of love, love look like in life? How is it fleshed out? How is it practically lived out? Well, let's take a look at verses four to seven. We read these often at a wedding. But this was in the context of an abuse of gifts in the church and poor relationships among believers. This is the context. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Beautiful description of the nature of God's love. It's truly the end result of what true faith is. The end of our faith should produce love. That's what it should be doing. I need to look at my life and say, how loving am I? That's telling me where I am in the spectrum of my growth in my faith life. I just look at how my love life is. Now, I love what Gordon Fee said. These, these are the words that have been haunting me for two weeks. This is what he said. The first two clauses, love is patient and love is kind, represent respectfully love's necessary passive and active responses towards others or difficulties in general. So let me ask you the question. How do you respond to difficult situations and difficult people? Pastor, I'm so full of patience and I'm so kind. If you can put that down, you can get your little report card out right now and go, okay, A. But if you are impatient, you gotta move down the scale a little bit. And depending on how impatient you really are, just keep going down. Some of you are going, I'm not doing good right now, Pastor. This is not fun. This is, the report card is already looking bad. And we just started. Okay, now notice what he says. The first verb pictures long forbearance towards them. Indeed, it's difficult to improve on the King James Version the long suffering. The second picture is active goodness on their behalf. In Pauline theology, in other words, Paul's theology here, 
They represent the two sides of the divine attitude towards humankind, which is what? Simply, on the one hand, God's loving forbearance and demonstrated by his holding back his wrath towards human rebellion. This planet is full of rebels. It's true. Humanity, we're a bunch of rebels before God. We're doing our own thing, thank you very much. On the other hand, his kindness is found in the thousandfold expressions of his mercy. I love what uh, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. The sun is shining on the good and the evil collectively. You know, every good and perfect gift comes down from God. Every good thing you've had in your life, relationships, resources, whatever you feel blessed by, God's been providing that for you. God is good. He is loving. Thus, Paul's description of love begins with this twofold description of God who through Christ has been shown to be forbearing and kind towards those who deserve divine judgment. You know, it's interesting. Jesus came into the world not to judge the world. We're already under judgment, folks. We're headed towards judgment. Jesus came into the world to save the world. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus, I didn't come to condemn it. I came to save it. God's not here to condemn our world. He's come to save our world. But how many know you have to recognize your need to be saved? The good news is that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, whom I'm the first. See, until you recognize you have a need, you'll never receive Christ as your savior. It's the way it works. But once you recognize you're broken, you're needy, Let me keep giving you the report card. Let's just keep going down here and I'll show you how far away we are from what God designed us to be because we were made in the image of God, God's moral image. We were made in this image. We were made to love like this, to show patience and kindness. But you go, that's not my personality, Pastor. I don't tend to do that. Well, let me go on here and just say this. How many know that one of the most challenging things in life is waiting for God to do something? How many say, yeah, I have no problem waiting on God? I'm just waiting for God to show up and do what needs to be done. Or do you, or do you find yourself being impatient? I love what Aunt Anthony Thesselman writes. He says, uh, many, well, let me go back and just say what Gordon Fee closes with. The obvious implication, and he's writing to the Corinthians, is simply this. This is how God's people through Christ and the Spirit are, be to, are to be towards others. In other words, what Paul is doing here is describing how we should treat each other. We need to be forbearing or patient and kind. Okay, let me go on to the next example here. Anthony Thiessen. He says, many examples of great things or events simply cannot be rushed. Examples of great music, a growing oak tree, the maturing of a thinker, scholar, or an artist. Why does our postmodern era ever demand instantaneousness? Why do we demand instant solutions, instant success, instant cures, and instant answers? That's a great question. Would genuine love for the other seek premature closure of what troubles or challenges the other? In other words, you know, somebody's pouring out their heart to us. Would you hurry up? I'm in a hurry. (laughs) How many already get, do you ever get a sense, you know, you're telling somebody, you're opening up your heart, and they're in a hurry to leave? How many feel loved at that moment? (laughs) That's what he's kind of talking about here, right? It says, He goes on, since God chose to make time along with space a dimension of this world, can love fail to respect its timings? I would argue that most sin is because you and I have been impatient and got ahead of God. And it brings all kinds of problems. It's a state of rebellion. We don't realize it. Temporal virtue is grounded in God. God will give us time for what God wills. And if he gives no time, has God really willed it? In other words, If it's going to happen, we need to wait for God to bring it about. But if we're not willing to bring it about, maybe God doesn't want it to happen. But you see, it's about us, and it's about our agenda, and this is what I really want. And God goes, well, you really want it, and you're going to go do it anyways, and he lets us do it. He never stops us. And then later on, we live with regret and terrible consequences. It's getting real quiet in here. Let's go down here and take a look. Let's take a look at the positive expressions. I mean, those are the two uh, positive ones. Let's let's take a look at what love is not. Love does not envy. Alan Redpath says, only love can see the inequalities of life and remain content with its own place. What's he saying? He's saying, whatever lot in life God gives me, I'm content with what God's brought into my life. I'm satisfied. Do you know if you're content with where you're at in life, it's really hard to to tempt you. 
Temptation comes when we're dissatisfied and we're more open to doing the wrong thing. You know, as a matter of fact, love does, uh, does not boast. This is certainly demonstrated by Jesus. Listen to what Jesus did. Who thought it not robbery to be equal with God the Father, but made himself of no reputation. He limited himself. He limited his godhood to become a man. Love is not proud. The evidence of true spirituality is humility. There's a proper recognition of our spiritual weaknesses and inabilities. Do you know what I discovered in life? The closer I get to God, the more I see how sinful I am. And the further away I am from God, the less I see myself as a sinner. It's really amazing. I think I'm okay. You know, it's so ludicrous to me. Some people think they're, they, they, they never do anything wrong. I'm going, really? You are living in a state of denial. You are blind to a lot of stuff in your life. Just try getting closer to God and see what happens. It'll be an awakening. When Isaiah came into the presence of God, he came undone. He saw himself as he really was. Love does not dishonor others. It's not rude. How many know there's a great need to be courteous and concerned for others, not self-focused? People are, who are rude are people who are blind to the people around them. But love is more concerned about those around them than they are about themselves. You know, a lot of people are traveling through life, it's all about them. They're at the center of their lives. That's selfishness. Love is not self-seeking. It's outward focus, not inward focus. People who are always focused on their needs are immature. That's the nature of a child. The child grows up thinking that he or she is the center of their universe, and when they finally grow up, they realize they're not. And that's a state of maturity, when you realize that there's another center in the world. And when you come to Christ, you realize that's the right center, and it changes everything. Now you're free to be the person God designed you to be. Love is not easily angered or offended. That's interesting. How many people are walking around? I, I see so many people walking around angry, offended, upset. I'm going, where's the love in all this? Now, can we be indignant by evil? Of course we can. Jesus was indignant when he saw uh, how the children were being pushed away as nuisances. Jesus saw them in need of his love, his attention, his concern, and their spiritual formation. As a matter of fact, Mark tells us People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. The disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. What is a little child like? Trusting. God wants us to trust him. And he took the children in his arms and he's put his hands on them and he blessed them. Love does not keep records of wrong done against them. Oh, what are we talking about here? We're talking about forgiveness. And when forgiveness means letting go of the past, giving people new opportunities. How many are here, you're so thankful that God gave you a new opportunity? How many are glad that God gives you new opportunities continuously? I need them continuously. I don't just need it once in my life. I need it all the time. I need a new opportunity. And I'm so glad that God doesn't keep reminding me of all my failures. How many appreciate that about God? Now, people will do that, but God does not do that. And when we do that to people, we're being unlike God. So don't, you know that little history book you have against the people around you? Get rid of it. No amens to that. God forgives us and scratches the record against us. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Love does not delight when others fail or fall into sin, but rejoices in what is right. I like what Alan Redpath says. Love does not delight in exposing the weaknesses of other people. A lot of people are so insecure and mean that they delight when other people struggle. What we should be doing is weeping over sin and brokenheartedness over others' failures. It will condemn the sin, but love will always yearn to cover and protect the person who has fallen. In other words, you know what? They go, yes, this is wrong, but you're still valuable. You're still loved. You're still worthy. See, you know, God can say to us, that's wrong behavior. It's hurting you and it's hurting other people, but that doesn't mean I stop loving you. It doesn't mean I stop caring for you. We need to be like that. People need to know that we're still in their corner even when they mess up. You know, think of the woman caught in adultery. You know, they wanted to kill her, stone her. That's what the law told them to do. What did Jesus do? He's writing on the ground. I love that story. I wonder what he was writing. Was he writing the list of all their sins? You know, who knows? 
But they all laughed. And finally, Jesus looked up and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? She said, they've all left. He says, neither do I condemn thee, but go and sin no more. So Jesus neither condemns, but nor does he condone sinful behavior. How many get a sense that there's a balance here? You know, we recognize that sin destroys that person and other people, but we also recognize that we're not gonna let people live in condemnation. They need to be forgiven. They need to experience forgiveness. You know, think of the time when Peter, this was so amazing. He, Jesus said, listen, Peter, you're gonna deny me three times. Peter goes, everybody else is gonna let you down, Jesus, but I'll be there for you, buddy. But we all know the story. The third time he's telling this young slave girl that he's not a disciple of Jesus and he's raining down curses upon himself, he looks up and then he sees Jesus looking at him. Now, I, in my imagination, I, I see Jesus looking at Peter, but he's not looking with a condemning, you know, con, you know con, basically scolding look at Peter. What I think he's looking at is through eyes of forgiveness and tears. And out of that, it breaks Peter. He realizes, I just sinned against love. The greatest sin we can commit is always against love. Love always protects. It always trusts. It always believes the best. It always hopes for the best. It always perseveres. Now, how many can say, I've been taking the report card, and I'm looking at this list, and I'm going, I'm not doing that well on this list. I have to confess, I'm not doing that well on this list. Because I know something about this list. This is how God loves. And I'm a human being, and I, I have a gulf between how I love and how God loves. How many here could honestly say you probably have the same gulf, gulf of distance between how God does it and how you do it? How many say I probably, if I had to you know, say I do all of these things perfectly all the time, I would have to give myself a failure. I don't do it perfectly all the time. Isn't that true? So how can, how can we, well, we'll come back to that in a moment. But let's just go to the third aspect, and it's permanence. You know, it's amazing to me that, you know, he, as he goes through the, this, the passage, he goes, love never fails. It's eternal in nature. All these other things in life, all the gifts, all the things we're doing, they're all going to come to an end. But the, what's going to be eternal is faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. It's eternal in nature, and it never fails. You know, love never fails in reaching the hearts of men and women. That doesn't necessarily mean that they'll always surrender their lives to Christ. Judas Iscariot was loved to the very end by Jesus, but love did not fail. Jesus loved him to the very end. Jesus did not allow his betrayal from stopping him from loving the betrayer. Isn't that an amazing thing? While Judas is kissing Jesus in betrayal, Jesus is still loving him. That's why love never fails. Is that powerful? Jesus never stopped loving. You see, love lives beyond the limits of time. It lives beyond the earthly life of the lover because it lives in our memories. You know, I want you to think for a moment right now, someone who loved you unconditionally. Can you think of a person? Yeah, it comes to your mind. Who are the people that really loved you, just loved you for who you were, was there for you, stood with you? Those people start popping in your head, but there's not a whole bunch of them. But there are people like that because love never fails. It's, it's permanent. So the question is, we need to open our hearts. We need to give our hearts to those in need. Love is giving our utmost, our best, for the highest good of another. Is that powerful? And then we realize, I can't love like this. This is beyond my capacity. We need to realize we need God's love to come into our lives, to flow through us in order to love like God unconditionally. Let me say that's probably true. I can't do this. God can do it. Where does God want to live? Inside of me. What does God want to have happen? He wants his love to flow into me, to heal me of my brokenness, so he can become a channel. I become now a channel of that love. So God's love flows in me. God's love flows through me. So how does this happen? Where does it begin? And the answer is in prayer. It starts with asking God. If you will call, I will answer. So here's where we're going to close. Here's the verses of scripture Paul writes to the Ephesians. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So what's he going to do now? He's praying for the believers 
that we may be strengthened. How many here say, I probably need God to strengthen something inside of me to love like this? I believe that. He's gonna strengthen you and me with power through his Holy Spirit. See, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Spirit. So what we need is the Holy Spirit to come and strengthen us so that we can love. That's what we need to have happen. Okay, look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love, to experience this love. That word know is not just intellectual understanding. It means to experience this love that surpasses knowledge. This is beyond your understanding. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Well, how can you be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God? Love. God is love. Now, I want you to just know something. Two people that I respect in their lives in ministry, D.L. Moody was a great evangelist, Charles Finney, same thing. They ministered, but one day they had an experience with God, and they, called, they said it was like this. They encountered the presence of God's love in such a measure in their life that Finney wrote, it was like liquid waves of love pouring into his soul. It changed him. D.L. Moody said, you know, he had the same experience where it changed his whole ministry. The love of God so filled him that from that point on, he, he was so broken when he talked to people about heaven and hell that he wept. He was so full of God's love. The greatest need in my life and the greatest need in your life is to be loved by God. There is no greater need. I'm gonna have a stand this morning. We're gonna take a moment to close the service. I believe that every problem we have, every challenge that we're experiencing, when God's love comes, it changes us. I, I wanna just say it this way. Think of the caterpillar. He has a nature. He's eating, he's eating. He's, he's kind of an earthly creature, right? He's eating all the vegetation. But then he comes to a stage where he cocoons. And out of that cocooning experience, he emerges unlike his former state. He's now a butterfly. Is that amazing? That's called metamorphosis. Scientists are amazed at that. That word is used in, it's a Greek word, metamorphosis. It's used three times in the New Testament. Listen to when it's used. God says, I'm gonna change you into my likeness. I'm gonna metamorphosize you into my likeness. This is a promise God's making to us. I love that. He says, I want you to present your bodies as living sacrifice. Be not conformed to this world any longer. Be transformed. Be metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind. God says, look, I want to change you. I want to change you today. I don't know where you're at, but I, when I look at my report card today, I go, I am not exactly loving like God loves but I need that love in my life, and it tells me I need to become a channel of that love to other people. Jesus said, you'll know my disciples because they do great miracles. No, he didn't say that. You'll know my disciples because they'll be intellectually brilliant and very eloquent. Didn't say that either. He said, you'll know my followers by the love they have for one another. But you know some of us in this room, we're going, man, I am so short on God's love in my life. So I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna invite you to come forward. Just come right out of your pew right now. Just come forward, come to the very front, come right to the very front. You want this kind of love to flow into your life right now. I'm gonna pray that this kind of divine love would flow into you so you could become a channel of God's love. You could just come right into the aisleways. See, I think, you know, why am I making you come forward? It's an act of faith. You're saying, okay, God, I, I looked at my report card. It's not what I want it to be. I get impatient. I get irritable. I'm not always kind. I'm rude sometimes. You know, 
It's not always about others. I have to be honest, sometimes it's about me. We're just gonna ask God to do a miracle today. We're gonna just pray God's spirit to come. Remember, God's Holy Spirit, a baptism of God's love. That's what I want in my life. I want God to just fill me with his love so that I can become that channel of his love to other people. It's gonna change our lives, folks. We want this metamorphosis experience with God. We want an encounter with God this morning. I believe that's what God's doing in North America right now. He's starting to send his spirit and pour love into side of people. Because I see so many wounded, hurting, broken people. So many people are angry. These people say they know God. See, did I quote that Jonathan Swift? We have just enough religion to hate, but not enough to love. That grieves me. I think he was right. Where's the love? So Father, we come to you today. We recognize our spiritual poverty. We know, Lord, we're not patient and kind. We're not long-suffering. We're not giving, you know, what we want is people to get what they deserve sometimes because we're angry at them. But the reality is you want us to love them like you do. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that you, as we open our hearts to you, that your spirit would come the Holy Spirit of the living God, the Spirit of God would come and fill our brokenness, our, our humanity with your divine love, Father. And I pray that we would become a channel of that. That, Lord, that you would start loving so deeply in us and then through us, Lord, that people around us will sense that we are carriers. We're bringing the presence of the living God to the broken places in our lives, the classroom, the workplace, shopping malls, wherever we're venturing, Lord, wherever we go, we're bringing your presence, your loving presence into those situations. We can't manufacture this love, it's not in us. It comes from above. So we give ourselves more fully to you. We're surrendering today our agenda. We're surrendering our agenda today. We're saying, Lord, not my will be done. We're saying your will be done. We're saying that we want this amazing change in our life where we can really love imperfect people the way you do. That we can love the least deserving, the unworthy. That we can love people. May it begin with our spouses. May it begin with our children, Lord. May it begin with the people we work with, people around us, oh God, the less attractive. Lord, that there's something that's happening inside of us because your spirit is filling us. Your life is being poured into us. Lord, baptize us, baptize us with the spirit of your divine love. Your Holy Spirit, which is love. Baptize us in that love, Father. You know, we can, we can talk about being gifted and all the rest of it, but Lord, we are barren when it comes to love. We pray today that you'd fill us. Fill us with divine love in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave.